I'm glad you're here this morning. We're continuing our series called uh, Follow Me through the book of Mark. And what we've seen so far in this series about Mark is that Jesus comes on the scene announcing that the kingdom of God is now present through his ministry. Announcing that God's reign, not reign like this, but his power and who he is, is coming to manifestation in this broken world through Jesus showing up on the scene. And as, as he goes about, he calls people to follow him. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then he, Jesus goes out and he, he lives out the kingdom. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He spends time with outcasts and people who are not welcome in Jewish society. And today we're in Mark chapter six. And with all that going on in the background, Jesus shows up in his hometown. Jesus shows up in Nazareth, the place where he was born. And Ozzy is going to read the passage for us. Uh, read with me uh, Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he, bega he began to teach in the synagogues. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such a mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits he charged them to take nothing for, their, for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not, put on, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them so they went out and proclaim that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them i love that idea that god is restoring his rule over the world he's setting things right by bringing his kingdom to expression on this broken world, in this dark place. You know, and I love seeing God's kingdom come to expression through you, through you. I love seeing Christians and followers of Jesus who walk with Jesus, and as they walk with Jesus, God's character is made known. We, we see when people adopt orphans into their home, the compassion of God's kingdom is manifested. When young people spend time with elderly widows, 
God's sacrificial love comes to expression. We see when people reconcile across dividing lines that God's peace is manifested, the kingdom of peace is manifested. And it's beautiful. And people are drawn to it. People are drawn to it. But then the question comes, why aren't more people drawn to Jesus? I mean, as they see God's kingdom of peace and love and joy and sacrificial love, why aren't they coming to Jesus? Why aren't people drawn to him? Is there something about Jesus that's offensive? Is there something about Jesus that offends people? Or is it something about us as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Are, are we offensive? Should Jesus offend people? Should we as Christians be offensive? Or is our job to not offend anybody? Those are the questions that this passage answers today. Is Jesus offensive? Should followers of Jesus offend people? Jesus goes to his hometown and he shows up back at Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and the, and the, the text of the day is read, the, the Old Testament's read. And Jesus is invited to expound on the Old Testament and he does. And, and as he teaches and preaches, people are astonished. Wow, he, he speaks with such authority. He's wise. But not only that, there's power coming from him. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And the people that Jesus knows from his boyhood are astonished. But the astonishment quickly turns to offense. The astonishment quickly turns to offense. The key phrase in this passage is, and they took offense at him. And they took offense at Jesus. That word offense means something more than wrestling. It's not that they're just wrestling with what he said. It's not that they're trying to figure out if they should agree or even disagree. It's that they were offended. And that word offended is where we get the word scandal. They're scandalized by Jesus and they reject him. There's a visceral reaction to Jesus and they say, no, thank you. We are not interested in you. And that's helpful for us because people are often not drawn into the movement of Jesus because they're offended by Jesus. They're offended by something about Jesus. But why in this particular passage are they offended? Why are they scandalized by Jesus? When at first they seem astonished, but then it quickly turns to rejection. Well, William Lane says, here's the reason. In spite of what they heard and saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness, the veil of ordinariness, which characterized this one who had grown up in the village. See, here's what they were seeing. Someone with great authority and power, someone who was wise and seemed to be sent by God, yet was just like them, had grown up in their same town. They knew him. They had watched him run around as a kid and they are offended and scandalized by Jesus's ordinariness, his ordinariness. And they say, isn't this Jesus the, the carpenter? Doesn't he work with his hands just like we do? I mean, his brothers and sisters, they're right, they're right here. He's just one kid from a big family. And not only that, he's the son of Mary. And what's, what's hidden in that statement is, 
we don't really know who his father is. We don't really know who his father is because remember that whole scandal with the virgin birth? And as they look at him and see that he's just one kid from a big family, he's a carpenter, and they're not really sure who his father is, they take offense at him because of his ordinariness. His ordinariness was offensive because they expected to be saved from the ordinary, not by someone who was ordinary. They expected to be saved from the ordinary, not by someone who was ordinary. You see, at this time in the land of Israel, Rome was the oppressive power that ruled over the people of Israel. And they wanted salvation to be from Rome. They wanted to be set free by a leader who would push back this oppressive power and give them a new kingdom. And so they were looking for someone not ordinary, but extraordinary. They were looking for a great king to come and who would raise the people up against the foreign oppressor of Rome and lead them into freedom. They were expecting someone extraordinary to rise up and save them from the mess, not someone ordinary and lowly who came from the mess himself. And as they looked at Jesus, they found him offensive because he was so ordinary. It didn't meet their expectations. And I believe that's one of the reasons why he offends us. I believe that Jesus' ordinariness is one of the reasons why he offends us. Because every person is longing for salvation from the ordinary. Salvation from the ordinary. Tim Keller says that there's something about Jesus' ordinariness that breaks down the way you and I want salvation to be. There's something in each of our hearts that wants to be saved from the ordinary, not saved by someone who looks ordinary like us. And the way we think about salvation subverts Jesus' ordinariness. We are longing to escape from the normal ordinariness of being a human. And that's how we want salvation to work. Let me give you an example. When you look at a billboard and there's beautiful people on that billboard and they have an amazing, uh, it looks like they're having an amazing life and there's one little product that they, that they use, something in your heart goes, I want that. I want that because as I look at those people on the billboard, I feel quite ordinary. And I want, I don't wanna be ordinary. I wanna be like them. In fact, that's what advertisers are going for. They want you to feel ordinary. And they want you to feel like their product can save you from being ordinary. If you do studies on marketing, they'll tell you, we're not going after people's heads. We're not trying to get them to think. We're going after their hearts. We wanna stir up in them that longing to be saved from the ordinary because that will get them to buy our product. Because in each of us, there is a deep longing for salvation to take us out of the ordinary human experience. We long for salvation from the ordinary. Fifty Shades of Grey and Fifty Shades Darker, I told you I'd talk about it. Some people say it's a movie about sex. I say no, it's a movie about salvation. You have an ordinary girl living an ordinary life, doing ordinary things until someone comes and saves her from the ordinary. 
and saves her from the ordinary. And she's saved into an extraordinary life. No longer does she have to worry about an ordinary life or ordinary sex or ordinary living. She's saved out of that ordinariness by this kind of weird creepy dude. I haven't seen the movie, but I've read a synopsis of it. And yet people go crazy over that movie. Why? Because it presents a salvation from the ordinary. People love it. People love it. And even as you think about distortions of sex, like you, you think about pornography, what is it about that that gets people's hearts? It offers a salvation from being ordinary. You're taken out of the, 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 what it means to just be in a relationship with someone where you've got to figure stuff out as you go and you're exposed as someone who's ordinary. But pornography offers the chance to escape from the ordinary. And that's why it sucks people in. Because in each of our hearts, there's something that longs to be saved from the ordinary. You know, a lot of people want to make an impact in their job. That's a great thing. People want to make, they want to do something meaningful with their life. They want to work in a way that impacts people and changes people. But the downside of that is that you're actually terrified to be stuck in a job that just says, you're ordinary. And so a lot of times people will quit their job and move on before they have another job because they're terrified if they stay in that one job that it will tell them you're ordinary. Now there's nothing wrong with changing jobs. I'm just using it as an example to show we all want to be saved from an ordinary life. Well, you might say, not me. No, I, I'm okay with being ordinary, but there's something in each of our hearts that is so fearful of even talking about this because we're afraid it's true. We are afraid of being ordinary. We are afraid of being ordinary. So we want more likes on our Facebook posts. We want to get more chiseled in the weight room. We want to have more influence on those around us because we don't want to be ordinary. We want a leader who's glitzy and glamorous and who's great and tells us we're great and he's going to make us great. We want, we want a leader who's uncommon and tells us we're uncommon. We want to escape from ordinariness. But Jesus comes very ordinary, smelling like cut wood, just one child among a big family with questions surrounding who his father is. Nothing could be more ordinary. Jesus comes very, in a very ordinary way. And there's something in our hearts that tells us he's too ordinary to offer us the kind of salvation that we actually want. See, rather than saving us from the experience of being an ordinary human, Jesus brings salvation to ordinary humans. Jesus comes as an ordinary human, bringing salvation to those who are just ordinary humans. And we find that offensive. We find that offensive. Unless, unless you understand why Jesus became ordinary. The reason that Jesus became ordinary was to get to ordinary you. Jesus became ordinary to get to ordinary you. He veiled himself in ordinariness so that he might love the ordinary you by covering up your offense against God that you owed, that you were in debt for 
as an ordinary sinner. Jesus came veiling himself in ordinariness so that he could cover up the sin and the offense that you had against God as an ordinary sinner. The Bible teaches us that every single person has offended God. We have sinned against him. In fact, the very first sin you could argue was someone who didn't want to be ordinary. Adam and Eve in the garden were tricked and they were told, who wants to be ordinary? Why don't you be extraordinary like God? And if you just eat this apple, if you just eat this apple, you'll have the knowledge like God does. Don't be ordinary, be extraordinary. But that is really where each of our sin is. Each of our sin is saying, I don't wanna be ordinary, I wanna be in the place of God. I wanna call the shots. I want God to revolve around me. I don't wanna revolve around God. And that act, that act of taking ourselves and putting ourselves in the place of God is offensive to him. In our book that we're reading, remind me who the author is? David Platt. Platt says something like this. He says that when you, the, the greatness of the offense matters on the greatness of the one offended. So Platt uses an example. He says, look, if you kick a stick, no big deal. You don't owe the stick anything because the stick is not great, even though you've offended it. You know, if you get in a fight and say something rude against another human being, things go up a little bit because you've offended someone who is made in the image of God. But if you offend the king, the offense is that much greater because of the extraordinariness of the one that you've offended. The point is this, we owe God a debt for our offense against him. And there's nothing that we can do to pay that debt back. He is extraordinary. We are ordinary. And so we find ourselves in this place of separation from God. We find ourselves that we, we don't know him. We, we don't live with him face to face. And so if you, if you ask people, what's God like? You get a, a thousand different answers because we're all just guessing because we're separated from him. But not only that, if we're still separated from him when we die, we end up in eternal separation because of the offense of our sin. But the good news of the gospel is that though we have offended God, he moves towards us in love. You are an ordinary sinner, yet an extraordinary God moves towards you by sending Jesus to die for you. Jesus comes to you, not as someone great, but as someone ordinary. God became man so that he could get to you. Jesus gives up his greatness, not to make you great, but because he wanted to get to you. He loves you and he's willing to die for you to cover up the offense that you have against God. See, all the time we're trying to figure out how can I be uncommon? How can I not be ordinary? But the freedom of the gospel says you are ordinary, but someone loves you and that someone's love is extraordinary. And that's what frees you. That's what frees you. You don't have to worry about being, you don't have to worry about being uncommon because you're loved with an extraordinary love by someone who became ordinary in order to get to you and die in your place. Jesus was substituted for you. He was put on the cross. He was punished in your place and he died 
He died and was put in a tomb, not so that you could escape being ordinary, but so that he could bring salvation to ordinary you. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. This is beautiful, but it's also offensive. It's also offensive because Jesus became ordinary to cover up your offense. Jesus' death means you're wrong. Jesus' death means we're all wrong. But for the person who sees their great need as an ordinary sinner, the ordinariness of Jesus becomes beautiful because he became ordinary to get to you. He became ordinary to get to you. Jesus himself says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, who sees that the reason that I'm here is to get to them. And as you accept the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus in your life, you'll begin to see the beauty of Jesus, that he came to meet you and to save you and to die for your sins. I wanna ask you to consider, if you're offended by Jesus, would you reconsider? Would you take a step back and just reconsider the great love of God that Jesus came as an ordinary looking guy to get to you? Would you not write him off? But would you reconsider what the gospel tells us that Jesus became man in order to get to you, that he might show his love for us on the cross? See, the amazing thing about this passage is it says, once the people wrote Jesus off, once they were offended, he moved on. But throughout the Gospels, throughout the stories in Mark, we see that anybody that just shows a little bit of faith, a little bit of faith towards Jesus, he moves towards them. He moves towards them in love. You know, maybe your first prayer is this, Jesus, if you're real, would you just show yourself to me in a way that I can understand? I wanna just take the next step of faith, whatever that means. I don't even know what it means, but Jesus, would you help me see you? Jesus loves that. And if that's you, come talk to us because we wanna walk with you in your journey. We're here to come alongside you and show you what Jesus has done in our lives because we can believe he can do it in your life. Jesus' ordinariness is both offensive and beautiful. But what about followers of Jesus? What about followers of Jesus? Are, are we supposed to be offensive people? Like, are we supposed to offend other people? Or are we supposed to go out of our way not to offend? I did a little Facebook Live video where I kind of talked about this topic and someone immediately wrote, just offend them on the, on the, on the queue. And I was like, okay, whoa, calm down. Um, but it's a good question because we live in an age right now where everyone's offended by everything and it, it, you're really uncertain what to even talk about, whoever you are, because someone's gonna get offended. And rather than just learning to work through conflict, our, our society says that when you're offended, it, you can just walk away. And so I think as Christians, we struggle and wrestle, like, what do we do here? How do we navigate through this in a moment in our culture when everyone's offended by everything? And what we look at in this next passage is it helps us clarify what we should do as followers of Jesus. 
Jesus calls his disciples together and he sends them out two by two. He sends them out in a team and he sends them out as ambassadors of his kingdom. In other words, Jesus delegates power to them. He says, you go out now, I'm not going with you. And he gives them very little instructions. He just says, go out and cast out demons. It's pretty crazy because Jesus is not anything like a cult leader. A cult leader won't delegate authority to anybody. They'll keep it all to themselves. But Jesus is like, yeah, I give you my power. Just go on out there and cast out demons. And I love that about Jesus. And maybe that'd be good for a lesson for us um, here at New City. You know, if, if you get the vision, run with it. We want you to get where we're headed. But as soon as you understand what that means to be part of God's blended family and what, what this means, we don't want to hold you back. Run with it. If you've got ideas for ministries, go. Let's talk about it. And the, the place that we really want to correct you is on the vision, you know? We want to make sure you get that, but then after that, we can run, we can run and just go for it. And that's, that's what Jesus does. He sets them free and says, just go. He delegates authority to them over evil spirits. And he sends them out into the mess with the message. He sends them out into the mess with the message. Jesus' instructions are, don't take any food. Don't take a bag with you. Don't take any money. Now, some Christians have read that and they've seen that as like a literal prescription. Anytime you go out doing ministry, don't bring anything with you. And I don't think that's what it means here. I think, I think what it is meant to convey is a sense of urgency. Like, just go. Just go. Get out there and go do it. That was particular to this particular mission that Jesus was sending his 12 apostles on. But it also conveyed the sense of peace and defenselessness. When you go and you have nothing on you, you're, you're just there. You're not there to start a war. <laughs> you're not there to start conflict. It's just you. And you're forced to rely on other people who you're ministering to. It makes you build relationships with those around you when you have no money and you have no food and you have no place to stay. And Jesus says, look, when you're going out into the mess with the message and you're doing ministry, if someone invites you into their home and you get a better offer, you get a nicer home, don't switch. Stay in that home until you leave the village. Why? Well, you're to avoid offense. You're, you're going not to offend people, but you're going to serve. You're going to be present among them. You're going to be incarnational. And that word simply means be among them and be present. So they, were, they went out and they're present with the demon possessed and with the sick. And Jesus's message here to them is go and serve. Be among people, be in the mess with them. Be in the mess with them and do it in a way that doesn't unnecessarily offend. That doesn't unnecessarily offend. But as you're in the mess with people, speak the message. Go into the mess with the message. Show people what the kingdom looks like by serving them, but then tell them that they're not king. Tell them that they're not king. In fact, tell them that they need to repent. Repent is a word that means to turn. It's a, it's a 180. It's you're going this way and you turn around and go the exact opposite way. And what it means in our faith is that we turn away from following our path. We turn to Jesus and we follow his path. Repentance happens in our heart. It's like a, it's like a, a sadness over our sin, but it also happens in our hips. We literally 
turn our lives around and begin following what Jesus has told us to do. Now that message in this culture right here is offensive because everyone wants to do what they wanna do and no one wants to be told you're heading in the wrong direction. You need to stop what you're doing, turn to Jesus and follow him. You need to repent. I mean, people didn't like that word because it's strong. Don't offend while you're in the mess, but the message will offend. The message will offend. Some will turn, some will repent. And those will be the very people that offer the apostles food and clothing and shelter. They'll hear the message and they'll turn. But Jesus says, you will be rejected for the message. You will be rejected for the message. Some will not listen to you. You will offend some and you will have to leave that town. And Jesus says, on your way out the town, take off your sandals and dust off the sand that's on your sandals. And that's kind of a Middle Eastern way of saying, we've told you the message. We're no longer responsible. We love you, but we're moving on. And so Jesus is telling them, listen, you will cause offense. See, when we share the message of the gospel that includes repentance and faith in Christ, offending is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. You will offend people when you share the message of Jesus. But we should be in the mess with people as we're sharing the message. We should be walking alongside them, going to the darkest places in our city, serving there so that people go, who are these people and what are they doing? So they know that we care about them as we share the difficult message of the gospel. We're to be in the mess with the message. And I think it's good for us because some of us need to wrestle. As a follower of Jesus, are you always offending people who aren't followers of Jesus? Are you always offending people who, are, who aren't followers of Jesus? Well, the reason that you might be offending them is it could be, it could just be you're a bully. That's one option. But the other option is that you're sharing the message without being in the mess with people. It could be that you're just telling them without showing them. It could be that you're just speaking, but not serving. The call for you is to be in the mess with the message. But some of you might not be offending anybody. You might, not, you might be terrified of offending anybody. You might be scared and, and we can pray for each other for boldness. But the reason you might not be offending anybody is because you're in the mess, you're doing that well. You're just not speaking the message. You know, as Chad has given us that ch this challenge, I think the hard part for us is to pray with people in the mess, in Jesus' name, the message. And I don't know if you feel it, like just to pray with someone is a lot easier than praying with someone in Jesus' name. Because you know when you go there, what might happen. <laughs> but that's the calling for each of us is to be in the mess with the message and you will offend some. That's why we write up here on this vision statement, we envision a church that communicates and demonstrates the good news of Jesus. Communicates the message, demonstrates in the mess, the good news of Jesus. As a church, we're called to do both. New City is called to be in the mess with the message in our city. One man who was in the mess with the message 
was a man, is a man named John Perkins, who's still alive. John Perkins was born in Mississippi in 1930. And after his mother died, his father abandoned their family, and his brother was killed by police, John left Mississippi and moved to Southern California. John was married and had a son, and his son eventually brought John to church. And at church, John became a follower of Jesus. When John was about 30 years old, and about around 1960, he moved back to Mississippi and began a Bible institute. And his primary focus at that time was the message. He really wanted to see people understand the message of the Bible and understand the message of the gospel. But as he began to continue to do ministry, he saw the importance of being in the mess with the message. He saw that it was about the message, but the message had to be in the middle of the mess. And John's wife, Vera, opened a daycare up in their home so that they could be right in the middle of the mess. John was involved in, in the schools when they were desegregated. It's right there in the middle of the mess. You know how tumultuous that was in Mississippi. And at one point, as things got tense in the middle of desegregation, some students protested, some black students protested, and they were arrested. And somehow in that, John was arrested as well. And he was taken to prison, and he was tortured. Tortured in prison in the middle of desegregation. Now, if you think about what you would wanna do if when you came out of prison, you would probably wanna stay as far away from the mess as possible. But John came out of prison with a recommitment to have the mess, to have the message in the middle of the mess. He actually came out of that experience with compassion for people who were white and racist because he saw the bondage that they were in by having a racist view of the world. In fact, John became so committed to having the message in the middle of the mess that two of his three principles had to do with that. His first principle was relocation. If you wanna see a community change, you have to relocate into that community. That's a one way of saying be in the mess, be present with people. But then the second part of his, his uh, three-pronged approach was reconciliation that as we're reconciled to Jesus together, then we reconcile to each other. That's the message. Relocation, reconciliation. Taking the message into the mess. And by the 1970s, John and his wife Vera had started thrift stores, health clinics, housing cooperatives, and Bible classes. They were committed to bringing the message into the mess and seeing people restored. And in 1999, John started an organization called the Christian Community Development Association, the CCDA. And much of our uh, philosophy of ministry comes from that organization, about being present in the community. And if you know anything about the CCDA, it's grown. And it has a huge impact on our country. And their core beliefs are having the message in the middle of the mess. Virginia and I were at a conference in October and uh, John was there, he's 87 years old. And uh, my wife and I accidentally sat next to him and he's very well known and yet incredibly humble, incredibly humble. I knew who he was, but Virginia didn't know who he was. And he leaned over and started talking to my wife. And uh, Virginia's family has some history in Mississippi. So they made a connection over that. And they just began kind of chatting it up. And as we were walking away, 
I said to Virginia, I said, do you know who the most famous person at this conference is? And she goes, no. And I go, it's that guy. And you just met him. We ran into John later that night, about 10 p.m. I could tell at 87 years old, it had been a long day. He was tired. And we were in the hotel, uh, hotel hallway. And uh, I remember that he was preaching the first thing in the morning. And I said, John, hey, man, it's good to see you again. Uh, we really respect what you've done. We really respect your life, how you've had the mess in the message or the message in the mess. And I said, I know, I know you're speaking tomorrow. What are you speaking on? He goes, well, you have to pray for me because I just don't know. <laughs> Here's a man who's been praying for, or preaching for 50 years and he's going to bed at 10 p.m. and doesn't know what he's gonna preach on the next morning. But we showed up and that man preached for an hour. That man delivered the message of Jesus Christ. And I think he's a wonderful example to us of what it means to have the message in the middle of the mess. Look what he says here. We live out our call most fully when we are a community of faith, a community of faith with arms wrapped around a community of pain. We live out our call most fully when we are a community of faith with arms wrapped about a community of pain. You know, as followers of Jesus, we should go out of our way not to offend when we're in the mess. But the message of Jesus always will offend some. But some will hear that message and turn to Jesus and join us in following him. What could it look like for us to embrace being a people with the message in the mess right here in our city? To be a community of faith that wraps its arms around a community in pain. To live out the kingdom of God while sharing the good news of Christ. Some will respect us for being in the mess and some will join us when they hear the message and some will be offended by the message. It's inevitable. But what would happen if we, even as John Perkins did, say what could be done in our community so that we could be more fully in the mess? You know, we've got the Sunday the morning thing down pretty good. We've, we've got it figured out, but what's next? I wanna ask you to pray with me about what we could do to be a community that has the message in the middle of the mess in our city. I've mentioned it before, maybe it's a program for young mothers with kids that just need someone to come alongside of them. Or maybe you have an idea of something that we could do. Let me encourage you not to just sit down in the pew with the message, but let's get out in the community in the midst of the mess and show them who Jesus is. I know that some of you that causes fear of the uncertain, but the good news is this, you are loved, God knows you, Jesus has died for you and his Holy Spirit is present with you. What more could we need? What more could we need? Let's be a community with the message in the mess. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for becoming ordinary, like us, to get to us. We pray that you would help us to, to see you more fully in what you've done for us. And that might lead us to be bold, to be bold, to not be afraid of offending, but to also be wise about being in the mess. We pray for your continued blessing on us this morning. In your name we pray, amen.